Now, as a boy uh, growing up uh, in Sydney, my memories of summer are filled with hours uh, mucking about with mates in uh, my backyard pool. We'd spend whole days out there, days and days of summer, seeing who could surf the furthest on a bodyboard, uh, seeing who could swim the furthest underwater holding their breath. Three laps was my record. But by far the most common battle was one we called the last man standing. It was a very simple game. What you do is you lock the gate of the pool. There was no escape. And uh, so there was ten of you around the pool and you had to maraud around the pool trying to push each other in until there was just one last man standing. So you could either take the attack of trying to avoid being pushed in or go for all-out attack and see if you could push everyone in and eventually there would be the crowned winner, the last man standing. It was a battle for supremacy, a battle for power uh, to rule the pool. We called it the last man standing and uh, while it was a lot of fun at the time, I I reckon at its heart was the same struggle we see at all levels of our experience in this earth. Our world is filled with twisted battles for power, grasping for power, battles to get what we want, battles to have and hold power over another. And while it was, as I said, a bit of fun for us on those summer days, uh, across the sphere of our experiences in this world, it is a destructive phenomenon. Be it Libya and uh, Gaddafi this week, uh, the the pictures of him, I don't know whether you saw them desperately grasping for power, pictures of him cruising through the streets of Tripoli in an open-topped car looking like some sort of washed-up rock star as he shook his fists as his country burnt. Or the the likes of the uh, Hollywood star Charlie Sheen on a seemingly relentless path of self-determined, no-one-tells-me-what-to-do self-destruction. Spending weekends on uh, life support after some drug-addled bender and calling it, he says, winning. Albeit the world of politics, the simmering tensions that always rule there as people grasp and try to cling hold to power. Or perhaps on the more personal level, the workplaces we experience, the uh, places marked so often by these little power struggles to get it and to keep it over another. Or many marriages in our world, whole fault lines of relationships over control. Perhaps in friendship groups, perhaps in wider family circles, perhaps even in church life. And as we come to John 19 tonight, we will see this same twisted battle for power. It's not a new phenomenon at all. This desperate struggle to get what we want, in this case, the battle over a man's life. That's what we have in front of us. The battle over the last hours of a man's life. A simple battle, two sides, as we saw last week. The Jewish authorities and the Roman governor at the time of the area, Pilate. They're both battling for power, both trying to get what they want. On on the side of the Jewish authorities, they have one simple goal. They've had it since we started this series. They want Jesus dead and they'll do whatever they need to to achieve that. They're claiming uh, in these recent verses that we've been looking at that uh, Jesus should be executed because he has committed treason against Rome. Sedition. He must die. And then there's Pilate who started, as we saw last week, as a reluctant participant in this power game but no real desire to be part of it but he was told this is your job, your decision. And over time as he discovered more about Jesus, discovered the truth that Jesus was speaking, even then he said, what is truth? Truth compared to the power I have in this world. 
I want none of your truth and all of my power. And so by verse 38 of John 18, he declares Jesus innocent and he places alongside Jesus an obvious guilty rebel, Barabbas. Surely the Jews will stop their plan, their struggle for power and release the innocent Jesus. Uh, But it is like those days uh, at the side of the pool. uh, Neither side is backing down. And so verse 40, we see just how intent the Jewish authorities are on winning. They say, kill Jesus and give us Barabbas. And so as we enter John 19, this battle is continuing in earnest. Pilate struggling to release Jesus and yet keep hold of his power. And the Jewish authorities struggling to kill him and so keep hold of their power. We enter John 19 in the middle of that battle, the battle to get what you want. And it will not end well. But along the way, we're going to see something remarkable. Out of all of this furious battle, something will emerge, a whole new form and use of power. One, as Jesus has told us in John 18, is not of this world. So let's look again at these two sides in this battle for power. Firstly, there is Pilate's power in verses 1 to 4, the power of Rome. And as you look down at these verses, we see the power of Rome is a cruel, destructive and desperately unjust power. Pilate is committed so much to his own grasp of power, he will do anything to keep it. And so having, to win, having failed to win the battle with this offer of Barabbas, he thought that would do the trick, he now turns to an even more twisted plan to win. Verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Flogging in Rome was unspeakably cruel. The victim, especially those that were eventually crucified, were stripped to the waist and beaten with whips fitted with shards of metal or pieces of bone. They were beaten and beaten and beaten until their torturers grew tired. The skin would be shredded and uh, documents detailing this sort of torture uh, speak of the bones and entrails of a body being exposed. Some went mad at the torture, some even died. Here is a power, a human power, that is unspeakably cruel to its enemy. And we humans have not stopped wielding such power in such a way, have we? Usually, again, it is against the weakest and most marginalised in our world. But tonight I want you to fix your eyes on this scene in John 1, John 19, verse 1. The eyes need to be fixed on your Lord and Saviour. The one who created everything that ever was and ever is. The one who holds your next breath in his hand. See him there beaten bent doubled over in indescribable pain at the very edge of death. And then added to that was the indignity of the dress-up game they made him play. Come on, Jesus, play king for us. You be king and we'll be the servants. And they put a crown of thorns on his head, a crown made of the thorns probably of the date palm, they say, Uh, thorns that were up to 12 inches long thrust into his head. A purple robe draped across his by now shredded back. And they lined up as if to pay homage and took their turns to walk up to him, feign to bow the knee and then struck him in the face instead. Hail, King of the Jews. 
But even here, even as this cruel power is unleashed upon Jesus, his kingship is declared loud and clear. The robe, the crown, the homage, all mockery but all true. It's as if the more Jesus is abused and tortured, the more loudly his kingship is declared to us by his abusers. Jesus is king. John writes this because he doesn't want you to miss amidst all the flurry of blows being thrown here. This is written that you might believe he is the king. And so it is dressed as a king that Pilate leads Jesus outside. I imagine the scene was something like this. Pilate, the man in all his pomp and all his power, striding ahead to the cheers of the crowd and staggering behind him, a barely recognisable man. Jesus. How desperately unjust this power is. Verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against him. He's innocent. And why would you do it, Pilate? You knew he was innocent and yet you had to use your power. He's innocent, says Pilate. He's telling the truth. Yes, he is a king, but not one I'm worried about, not one you need to be worried about. He presents Jesus as a pathetic, harmless figure, a whimpering dog who had come up against the might of Rome and felt the whirlwind. And so as Jesus finally staggers to the front where Pilate is, Pilate turns and he points and he says, Behold the man, the man, barely alive. No wonder he couldn't carry his cross. No wonder he died so quickly on the cross. Behold the man. Pilate speaks the words as sarcasm. Here is the man you find so dangerous. But look at him. He's barely a man and certainly no threat. Uh, But as John writes this, I suspect he writes firstly with grief as he remembers this moment. But then also joy, triumphant joy. Behold the man indeed. Even here... Even now, beaten, mocked and bowed, this man is indeed the man. More alive and more human than anyone else in this scene. As diminished as he is and appears to be at this moment, he is the one perfect image bearer of his father. Our God, the one true man. Behold the man. The very word made flesh, as shredded as it is, even in weakness, even in pain and distress. This is man in all his glory. Behold the only man in this scene who is secure and not clamouring after some illusory power as we all do, but trusting his Father, completely confident even in this moment in his Father's provision. Behold the man that Isaiah 50 longed to meet when he wrote these words, I offered my back to those who beat me. I did not hide my face from the mocking because the Sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring a charge against me? Let us face each other. Behold the man, the one true man, the servant of the Lord, innocent before his accusers. Here is a man like none before or since. Here is a man I long to be, but am too fearful and too weak to be on my own. 
and to this man who is everything we should have been but are not, they shall crucify. You see, it's not just his kingship that is not of this world, it's also his humanity. He's not like us and we hate him for it. How twisted is that? Well, there's Pilate's power and now we turn in verses 6 to 8 to the power of the Jewish authorities, the power of religion as we saw last week. And back to the struggle in verse 6, we've seen Pilate play his cards, these cruel and destructive and unjust cards. He hopes it's enough to win and, well, he couldn't be more wrong for his power is matched by another. The power of the Jewish authorities which is a hateful and deceitful power. You'd think, wouldn't you, that the sight of this helpless man beaten within an inch of his life would move their hearts to some sort of compassion. But there's no heart here. This is about power. And we humans are happy to subvert our hearts and gain to gain and keep power. And so they see this man, this shredded man, their king, and they hate him and they cry, kill him. The torch is not enough for them. Partly, I suspect, because Pilate continues to mock them and they will not let him win, but mainly because they just want him dead. Pilate is uh, indignant and exasperated by their response. Do it yourself, he says. You really want to kill an innocent man? Is that what you've come here to do? If that's what you're planning to do, well then do it yourself. I've given you my judgement, I've said he's innocent and you seem to be ignoring that, so if you want to kill him, go for it. But then the Jews play the first of their trump cards. Maybe, Pilate, we haven't been completely honest with you. And out in verse 7 comes their real motive. Up to now they've been playing the political card, the card that says he's a threat to Rome and that seems to be crumbling and so now they play their real motive. They couldn't care less about sedition. If they did, they wouldn't have allowed... Barabbas to be released and here's why they hate Jesus so much. Verse 7, we have a law they say and according to the law he must die because he has claimed to be the son of God. We have a law and it's your job Pilate to keep that law. The law I suspect they speak of is Leviticus 24 where we're told the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord will be put to death. Here is a man who has walked into the Jewish authorities and claimed to be God's son, the Messiah. He must die. And so now the tables have turned. The Jews are very much in the ascendancy and Pilate knows it and so we're told his fear grows. Firstly because he's starting to realise they're not going to stop. They are so relentless in their goal to kill this man. They will keep coming. And so here this supposedly powerful man, Pilate, is backed into a corner. He's just a pawn in their game. And secondly, he's fearful because he knows already Jesus has told the truth about his kingship. We saw that last week. What if he's telling the truth about this as well? What if he really is a son of God? Now I suspect Pilate might not have known much of the biblical weight of such a title but the Roman world was full of belief in God, full of belief in the divine, even the idea of a son of God was common. There would be reason to fear if he was one of these. He just flogged this man. And so Pilate retreats back inside to calm his fears, to see if he can get an answer out of Jesus. And so in verse 
9 to 11, we see where the real power comes from. Pilate questions Jesus, where do you come from? They're saying all sorts of things about you. We know you're a king. Now they're saying you're the son of God. Where do you come from? Is there any substance to these claims? Jesus says nothing. And he's told Pilate the truth already. We saw that last week. His kingdom, he said, was not of this world. He's already told him who he was. But Pilate, while knowing that truth, we saw last week, refused to believe it. What is truth? Refused to bow the knee to this king. His moment has passed. And so Jesus will give him no more answers. How can you answer a man who rejects the truth? Then in this battle for power, we are shown where true power comes from. Pilate questions Jesus and no response. It's like a red rag to a bull to a man who thinks he is in charge of the scene. How dare you refuse to answer me? Don't you know who I am? I am Rome. Walk in any direction you like from this place for as long as you like, Jesus, and you will find there the stamp that says Rome rules here. And you, my friend, to you I am Rome. Your life and death, well, that's my decision, my power to control. Then it happens. Jesus' calm and defiant response in verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Wow. Wow. You are nothing more than an instrument in God's hands, Pilate. The reason Jesus came into this world was for this hour. You are not in control of this scene. God has given Pilate at this particular moment authority to kill Jesus. Your power is borrowed, Pilate. You only have power because this is our plan. This is how I'm going to bear witness to the truth. Millions upon millions upon millions will read of this scene as we do tonight, and they will believe because of it. Your power was given for that purpose. Your power was given because heaven intends for me to die tonight. Pilate stands before a beaten Jesus as a power-hungry fool. I am Rome. Jesus' response, well, George Herbert's poem puts it best. He says this, Spare not, do thy worst, You shall only make me greater than I was before and you shall make yourself so much less that you will be no more. Your twisted abuse and your clamour for power will only result in your house crashing down around you, Pilate. So do your worst. Lift me high on that cross and watch as I draw men to myself. And know this as well, Pilate. While your power is borrowed, you, like the Jewish authorities, will be judged for how you've used it. The Jewish sin was plain. They had handed Jesus their king over some time ago and Pilate will do the same thing in verse 16. And so as we get to verse 12, we come to the end game in this battle. Both sides still desperate to win. Pilate still trying everything to release this man and the Jewish authorities play their final trump card, their best yet. They go for Pilate's weakness. Even the Son of God card didn't work so they've gone back to the political one. Pilate is a man who craves power but he himself has a king. 
Caesar could take his power away in a moment. And so they tell him, you have a king too. And if you let this man go, this man who is claiming to be a king, what do you think Caesar will say? Caesar himself who is paranoid and desperate that nobody tries to take his power away. And Pilate has reason to worry. The Jewish authorities have complained on regular occasions to Caesar about his treatment of them. And these claims of sedition against Jesus are substantial, aren't they? It's not that he's kept his kingship a secret. And what a moment it would be for Caesar, the the clearly no friends of Rome, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities who hate Rome. What an opportunity for Caesar to make friends with them by killing this man and getting rid of Pilate. You have to do this, Pilate. If you want to keep your palace and your power, you have to do this. And so verse 13, Pilate folds under relentless pressure. He sits in the judgment seat of Rome, judging the king, the one whom the Father in heaven has entrusted all judgment to. You're in the wrong seat, Pilate. But he's got to do it. Back on those summer days in the last man standing, there was a moment when you knew you were done, uh, when the wrestle with a, a, another a mate it got to the point where the gravity of the situation literally took over, where you knew there was no way back, you were going in the pool, that was it. And it's as if time stood still for a moment, you had a moment to reflect all the things you could have done differently to get him in the pool rather than yourself. And then it came to you. I could take him down with me. And in a flash of arms you'd reach out and you'd grab his arm as you fell down and the gravity of it all would take you both plunging deep into the pool. Pilate knows he's gone. He's lost this one. But as he sits to deliver his judgment, he enjoys one last sweet moment of revenge. Can you imagine it? The crowd, they've been waiting for this moment, desperate to hear the guilty verdict and the death sentence. Here it comes. He's about to say it. He's got nothing else he can do. Pilate opens his mouth and proclaims in verse 14, Behold your king. Behold your king throwing in their face the spurious charge of sedition and reminding them of who they were, this vassal in the Roman Empire, this bloodied, helpless man that they were about to kill. This was the only king the Jews would ever see. Behold your king. Pilate knows the truth Jesus speaks. He wanted to let him go. He is a king, but the price, well, it was too high. But if he is to lose this twisted battle, he will not lose alone. What would you have me do with him? He says, behold your king. This is your king. Get rid of him, they cry. Kill him. Kill your king? Are you sure you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? He's your king. And then it comes. Verse 15. We have no king but Caesar. What a moment. If I could use poetic license for a moment, I suspect at that moment in history you could have heard a pin drop in heaven that it should come to this. The Son of God, the one they'd hoped for, longed for, sung about, stood before his people and they shout, we have no king but Caesar. They turn their back on this man, this king, their God. 
They'd waited for him for centuries in the hope that he would come. And now on the moment of his visiting, the moment of decision, they see great David's greatest son. They proclaim Caesar is their king. This is as good as it gets for us. This cruel, destructive, unjust power, give us that. We want a king like the nations, they cry, just as their forefathers did in 1 Samuel 8. Now, of course, Pilate loses too. His fall has been coming for some time and he's clinched in verse 16 as he too hands over, betrays Jesus. Well, there's John 19. There is human power and all fall down. Pilate and the Jews, it is lose-lose. And Jesus will go on to be crowned king later that day. He will end the day as the only king lifted high as he had planned. John says, This is written that you may believe that Jesus is the King, the Son of God, that, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we close, see what we have seen tonight in John 19. Two kingdoms on display, two forms and uses of power. We've seen the kingdom of this world marked by a complete commitment to self Power to take, that's what we're after, that's what we've seen. We see it with Gaddafi, with Charlie Sheen, with our politics, with our marriages, even in church life. A twisted use of power that is shaped by man, a man as Luther describes him, as a man curved in on himself, utterly committed to himself. Power to take, that's what we want. Pilate in the end will be brought down by the complaints of the Jewish leaders, history tells us. And he will be remembered for one thing in history. You've said it tonight. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. What a thing to be remembered for. And the Jews? Well, the very law they cited in Leviticus 24, woe to him who betrays the Son of God. But I suspect we must be careful not to stand at a distance from their power. For we are there too. This is humanity. We've approached our king and maker and shouted at him, we do not want you, we reject you. And so see yourself in this scene, lined up against your God with Pilate and the Jews and the clamouring crowd. And you've got to see yourself with them because if you look at the scene, there's no one else in the scene. No one is with him, they've all gone. And so we must acknowledge our guilt in this scene too. We put him there. It is, as uh, Peter Green said, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Or as John Stott put it, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. You were there. You, me, together. But realise something else is on display in this scene, another king, another power. John's uh, written this very carefully so that we see it. In verse 13 we're told exactly where this took place and in verse 14 we're told exactly when. The sixth hour of the Passover week. The hour, the very hour, the Passover lamb was prepared and slaughtered ready for the feast. This is the hour God chose for his son, the lamb of God, to be prepared for slaughter the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Two powers, 
two sides of the cross. On one side is the most definitive shout from humanity to say, we don't want you, God. But on the other side of the cross is our God shouting just as loud, I love you more than you can possibly imagine. Behold your king and thank God he wins, not you. There's so much I suspect for us to explore in this chapter, so much and I wish we had weeks to do it. But as we finish, here are two things to have in your heart as you walk home and into this week and before that, two things to have in your heart as you walk to this table, his table, your lamb, your king's table. The first is this, it's simple, behold your king, see his power. Do you want to know for sure that God is utterly for you? that he delights in you and see the king, see the man. See him coming not to take power as we do but to empty himself of his power to die on the cross for you. You have nothing to fear from this king for here is a kingdom committed not to self but others. Here is a king that comes not to take but to give his life. So have absolute assurance that he is for you. You have every reason to bow the knee before him. And secondly, fill your heart with this king. I reckon to the degree that the news of this king fills your heart, that's the degree that he will bend, even break your prideful clamour for power in whatever sphere of life you experience it. To the degree that his spirit is at work speaking to you of this king, is the degree that your heart will be free of the lust for power over another in the workplace or in your families or in your marriage or in church life, you will be transformed into the very likeness of this king. Let's make that our prayer this week, that he would make us like his son. Let's pray together.